Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to another edition of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today, regrettably, we are paying tribute to Jackie Lane, best known probably for her role as Dildo Chaplet in Doctor Who opposite William Hartnell's Doctor. Simon, this is really where you come in with a, a little bit of history about her as an actress. And it's only a little bit, I'm afraid, because Dodo was her last acting credit on IMDb. She has a grand total of six acting credits. She appeared in Coronation Street, uh, a couple of spy dramas like The, the Protectors um, as Dodo Chaplet, and her other regular acting role was as Rosemary Gray in nine episodes of Compact in 1963. I suspect this is something we're going to hit in the Black Archive. Compact was a BBC soap opera set in the offices of a, uh, a women's magazine. It's one of the BBC's attempts to find a rival soap opera to Coronation Street, which kind of carried on until they hit the right formula with EastEnders. It's the other big thing that she was in, not an awful lot of which exists. Ran for a good four or five years in the early 60s. Uh, Carmen Silvera was one of the, the lead characters. But ultimately, it didn't, it didn't really reach the heights of Coronation Street and fell by the wayside. Very few episodes of it exist. I don't think any of Jackie Lane or Jackie Lenya, as she was known at that point, I don't think any of her episodes still survive. I don't think there's much of Compact that survives at all, is there? I don't know. Let's have a look at the magic that is TV Brain. Massive, massive, massive list of missing episodes. Uh, okay. Out of the original run of 373 episodes, four survive. So that's quite a gap then. It is. Well, Jackie Lane, of course, went on later in life to become an agent, famously managed Tom Baker and Janet Fielding. And I'm fairly sure that Janet Fielding then went on to manage Paul McGann and advised him against taking the role in Doctor Who, which he did anyway. I don't know about advising against taking the role. I believe that when the film was being filmed, uh, she turned up on the on set because she, she was the agent for Paul McGann. Uh, Doctor Who fans were elbowing Paul McGann out of the way to get her autograph. Yes, that, that I believe is true, yes. I can believe that of Doctor Who fans, frankly. Really? Well, yes. Here we are back in the viewing room, but there is one very, very important bit of housekeeping that somehow we've managed to miss. What have we got for tonight? Tonight we have a pretty classic Tanqueray London Dry Gin. It's export strength. Export strength. It is. It's 43.1%. And the Infobollocks tells us, in very small writing... Charles Tanqueray began distilling in 1830, and Tanqueray Gin continues his legacy of excellence. The highest quality spirit and the finest botanicals, picked at the peak of their freshness and carefully crafted to produce this exceptional, much-revered taste. 
Well, nose-wise, I'm getting absolutely nothing off that. I know that this is sort of one of your go-tos. Can you? Are you getting anything out of that? It smells a bit alcoholic-y like gin. Yeah, it is a yeah standard, I would say. But, uh, oh well, dive in. This is what we class as a standard gin. We're just having it with Indian tonic and ice. Wow, that's Some of us will be having more ice than others. I have just got one large TARDIS cube. Thank you very much. Well, as I do for these tasters. I really like that. I've always liked Tanqueray. It is. It tastes like gin without any extra botanicals or anything in. It's a very smooth gin. It does what it says on the tin, basically. And it's good for use for whatever you want. So it makes a very nice gin and tonic like we're drinking it. It also makes an extremely nice martini. It doesn't quite have the backbone to make a good pink gin, but you really need a good heavy Plymouth gin for a good pink gin because the the bitters are so overpowering. But Tanqueray is a very nice, very standard gin. Smooth, there's an after tingle on the tongue, but no particularly unpleasantly bitter aftertaste. I've got to say that a lot of standard gins, base gins, they do have that bitter sharpness when you... When you first taste them, this, it's there, but more of a, a tingency rather than a bitter sharpness. There's no lingering bitter aftertaste, and it's so smooth. I, I've got to say, I've never really, I've had Tanqueray before, of course, but I've never really appreciated it just as a gin on its own. Based on everything that it does on the tin, I've got to give this five out of five. Yeah, I agree as well, actually. This is a lovely, smooth base gin. And I've always said that when you come to do all the clever varietals, you need to get your base gin done well and done smoothly so that you can build on it. This is a beautifully done basic gin. It's five out of five for me as well. So without further ado, it's episode one of The Gunfighters from April 1965, starring Jackie Lane as Dodo Chaplet, William Hartnell as Doctor Who, Ron VT. The time travellers arrive in the Wild West. Only to be confronted by four dangerous gunmen. Episode was first broadcast April 1966. Now, (laughs) this is our first exposure to Linda Barron singing The Ballad of the Last Chance to Loon. It won't be the last. My God, you get sick of this. There's a different stanza from this between every fucking cutscene. It was a nice idea. It was an attempt to do something different. But, um, yeah, it does get on your tits very quickly. Now, to be fair, when I was a baby Doctor Who, Doctor Who fan back in the 80s, this was widely regarded as the worst ever episode of Doctor Who which I suspect is massively unfair. Definitely it's never going to be a huge favourite of mine. I suspect now we know that that is definitely not true, because apart from a certain modern episode of Doctor Who, starting with The Timeless and ending with Children, there's also from the 60s The Celestial Toymaker, which is infinitely worse, in my opinion. Yes, It's never going to be a favourite of mine because I'm not 
particularly a fan of cowboy stories. Having said that, I don't think this is anywhere near as bad as the Celestial Toymaker or the Invisible Enemy or the Twin Dilemma or uh, almost anything with Jodie Whittaker. I feel exactly the same. That isn't a slur on Jodie Whittaker. It's just a slur on the Chris Chibnall era. Yeah, any more than saying that the Colin Baker was era was generally terrible but that's not down to Colin Baker not being able to be a good and effective actor, it's down to the scripts he was given Why is Stephen so excited about this? Because he's supposed to have come from the far future, I mean I I can understand Dodo because it was Bonanza and all that bit which is presumably why they did it in the first place those lights are very stable for gas lights. I mean, One of the pubs that I used to drink in in Belfast still had gas lights. And it was a tourist trap place that made a point of having gas lights. But they, they never looked like that. They were very flickery. Shane Rimmer, who is... Uh, well, Shane Rimmer's Canadian, actually, but he's the nearest they get to an actual American in it. And as I recall... He's not in it very long. There's some dreadful cod American accents in this bar. Dear God, what is that? I suspect Stephen's cowboy outfit is uh, akin to the bright pink that Marty McFly wore in Back to the Future 3. I've never seen Back to the Future 3. Oh, they're a lovely set of films. But you've got to watch them as a series. I've seen the first two, but it was kind of a bit... Matrix in that I I loved the first one. I thought the second one was really disappointing, so I didn't bother watching the third one. Back to the Future is it's got to be watched really. The first one, if you'd have left it on its own, would have been perfectly okay. Stephen is walking as though he's just spent the night with Jeff Stryker. I assume this is some sort of well-endowed porn star. Yep. That, well, that, wait that's a, bit like... a minute. This is the Wild West. There's a fucking brick wall there made out of what looked like Accrington brick. And very, very even. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Somebody's had a spirit level. Really nice pointing. (laughs) But an appallingly built door. See, as with all 1960s, I'd say Doctor Who, but in 1960s dramas in general, the sets, all things considered, with the space they had to work with and the money they had, they're not bad, actually. Particularly when you get into the actual sort of main street, you think there's a lot of blow-up photographic walls, but with the top and safety they've had to build this, it's not oh. terrible. And on the subject of subtle, there's Kate. Kate's the local slattern. Uh, Madam, I assumed but might be a small town with a warm, warm woman trade and good luck to her. Well, do we actually see any other women? Dodo. And this era of 60s Doctor Who, are there a huge number of women actually seen there? I mean, you've got things like 10th Planet, Moonbase, where there aren't any women at all. That's a um, fair point, yes. Stories like the Macro Terror, there are women as extras, but... Um, no women in, in actual lead roles. Uh, Evil of the Daleks, where there are women, but they're 
background and decorative. And okay, that's a Victorian thing, but. Oh, just looking at that, um, she's walking down the main street. There's a horrific photographic blow-up of the street receding into the distance. Can you imagine if this was put in colour and in HD, how oh, horribly noticeable that would be? Yeah, but they've just blasted a whole load of money on the Dalek master plan and they had to catch up with it somewhere. So the, this and other stories are entirely studio-bound. But again, they've done so much that, CG work. That's not a problem. No, well, no, but they could. I mean, they could fix that now with 2020s computer-generated backgrounds. They could map that out and and put something else in. A lot of this stuff could be polished up to a really high degree for 1960s TV. And I'm sure it will be. I have no doubt that by the time that uh, the Blu-ray range gets itself to doing season three then the stories that we have and whatever additional episodes we may or may not get in between will have the option to watch the original and an option to watch a CGI'd up, colorized, this is what we aim to do for 2020, whatever, which will be fantastic. I, I love some of the CGI stuff that they've done to, to boost the old stories. Absolutely I just think, because they're quite subtly done in many cases. Absolutely makes kinder. Yes, it does. But we talked about that before. Your humble servant, Dr. Kelly Gow. I love the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. There is, I went to see it in Newcastle in a really small cinema where the score had been redone by Stephen Severin of the of the Banshees, and it was absolutely astounding. But that really is quite an aside. Um, the thing that this does really nicely is allow William Hartnell and Peter Purvis to stretch their comedy muscles. That bench is painted on the building. Wow, that's quite a convincing 3D bench. The only problem with all this comedy acting is that it does take away any of the, uh, what's the word, threat from the situation. Yeah, but it's one of those things where you know at the end of the four-part or six-part or whatever, the regulars are all going to walk away. Well, actually, having said that, for the majority of Doctor Who's history, you could say that. But this is, what, four stories after a mammoth story where two regulars got killed. So there's possibly a little less... These are three people who have arrived and are going to leave normally, or one is going to stay and there'll be a good reason for them to stay. The town's founder, Ed Shifflin, was informed that the only rock that he'd find there was his own tombstone, hence the name. Well, I didn't know that. It's a bit of a crowbar, though, that the doctor's got toothache, so they land in tombstone. I mean, I know by this point he can't really control the TARDIS, so he says, but you wouldn't really land in the Wild West if you... (laughs) But it was a... You turn up wherever you're going to turn up, and... Deal with uh, and deal with whatever facilities there are. If he turned up in New Earth, then yeah, it would have been a three-second thing. 
Now that's a nice set. They all are really. Consider, like I said, considering the scale of the thing. Because mm. all of the sets, there's the sort of Doc Holliday's dentist surgery, the bar and the main street, they're all constructed simultaneously. Yeah. So they must have had a, a decent amount of space. I mean, it, it's a very nice-looking episode. Mm. <laughs> William Hartnell's doctor looking horrified at Doc Holliday for taking a slug of whiskey as his anaesthetic before he starts. <laughs> Mind you, looking at uh, William Hartnell's teeth in The Tenth Planet, Doc Holliday ripped a few more out than he should. Um, well, if you look at the animated uh, William Hartnell in uh, Reign of Terror, he had lots to aim for. <laughs> These aerial shots are nice. Jackie Lane looking more attractive than she usually does in this episode. Her hair's done a different way, and she's got this little Wild West outfit on. The problem with Dodo is that she's different in pretty much every story from irritating school kid through to pretty much the adult in this one because Stephen becomes an absolute comedy character. But she starts out with a bit of a northern accent and then it, apparently that was supposed to be Cockney. Bear in mind that Jackie Lane was born in Manchester. And then she drifts, not exactly RP, yeah. but it's a little bit more pronounced. Yeah, but I was born in Liverpool. That doesn't mean I have a Scouse accent. That's a very odd accent. And I suppose with things like Bonanza and Gunsmoke and all of, the, all of those would have been about this sort of time. Uh, yeah, they were all 1960s, weren't they? Sort of maybe early 70s. Things like Bonanza went on for years and years and years. You can understand why they would want to do a, a, a Wild West story. And having made that decision, I think they do it, they do it well. It's just not really my cup of tea. Well, I can't say that The High Chaparral or Bonanza or anything like that was my cup of tea at all when I was younger. I, I didn't find Westerns. I still don't find Westerns interesting. I've seen the Fistful of Dollars trilogy with Clint Eastwood. But that was a very long time ago, and it was just because they made a fuss of it on Channel 4 at the time. I can't say that I am a Western fan. No, it's not really my cup of tea either. But I have to say, he didn't really seem to have an awful lot of trouble taking that truth out. Now, I'm not a dentist, but I had to have a dental extraction a good few months ago, and it took me bloody ages to get over it, and it took nearly an hour, and they had to shave chunks of jaw out, and... It was all... Yeah, but bear in mind, by this point, the Doctor's five or six hundred years old at least. So, uh... <clears throat> so probably didn't have too many left. Yes. Yeah, that's the best way of treating somebody who's just had a tooth extracted to punch them in the cheek where the tooth's been extracted. Yeah. How did he pay for that, sure incidentally? See, this sets on separate That's a really that's nice thing. It's just a shame it leads on to this. 
Yeah, that song's really starting to get quite irritating now. And this is even before Peter Purvis tries singing it. There's a lot of terrible Wild West accents in this. They are dreadful. The ballad of the last chance saloon. Play, maestro. When the opportunity arises, take a glance at Dodo's hands. At no point do they ever touch the piano keyboard. And to be fair to Peter Purvis, he's not doing a bad job of this. And again, it's back to exercising the comedy muscles. Now, that's be the gentlest cliffhanger it, It's an odd ever. cliffhanger. Next episode, Don't Shoot the Pianist. Cue Sig. I'm not sure there have been many other stories where there's been such a mild cliffhanger as singing a song. Oh, and producer was... Tucker. Okay. I was more thinking, Innis Lloyd was in the production seat by this stage, and you tend to forget just how short a period John Wiles was a producer for. It's only four stories, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, one of them's master planned, yeah. so it's about three, the equivalent of three normal stories. But yeah, even with that, it's not a long period of time. And when you listen to the behind-the-scenes stuff, then it's kind of, you understand why it's an, not a long period of time. But the Gunfighters, uh, as with all Doctor Who's, we're going to watch the middle episodes and then come back for a full commentary on... The last. Ron VT on episodes two and three. Well, if it ain't a great doc. Oh, you flatter me, young man, yes. Doc, I would like you to meet the, the Clanton brothers. The Clanton brothers. Oh, dear. I mean, uh, how do you do? For the Clanton's and Holiday in town, you and me's headed for a load of trouble, boy. We shot down one of the Earth brothers. Now you really have declared war. I'd blast you, Dinah, sooner spit at you. We're leaving now. <laughs> You're under arrest, Pop. Under arrest, and don't you call me Pop. Look, we'll give you five minutes. Holiday's my prisoner. Well, that's too bad, because if he ain't out of there in two minutes, his friend regret here is gonna swing in his place. Yeah. Now! Okay, well, after episode one... Uh, it becomes obvious that the Clantons, who are the, the bad guy gang in this, think that the Doctor is actually Doc Holliday. So Doc Holliday is quite happy to let the Doctor go back to the hotel or the saloon bar after he's had his teeth removed and be shot in his place. But Kate intervenes, the Doctor survives, and Doc Holliday goes into hiding, uh, initially above the saloon bar, which is interesting. Wyatt Earp and the Sheriff turn up and break everything up. They take the Doctor into custody for his own protection. But Stephen is now embroiled in all this, trying to smuggle him out of the prison. 
The Doctor refuses a gun, as ever, and then Stephen finds himself in front of the Clantons, intent on lynching him because he's a mate of Doc Holliday's. There's a lot of running around. Wyatt Earp again diffuses the situation, takes Finn Clanton into custody, and the Doctor and his gang are told to leave town at the earliest opportunity. Dodo, in the meantime, has fallen in with Doc Holliday and Kate, who are both planning to do one and take her with them. And then <laughs> there's just a lot of gun shooting. And eventually the Clantons burst into the prison to try and burst out Finn from his prison cell. In the process, they kill Warren Earp. And that's where episode three ends. So there's a lot of running around between three sets in two episodes. A lot of gunfighting with not a lot of people actually getting hit. And a lot of people hide. It's like a big game of hide and seek with guns, really. As I said, I'm not a huge fan of um, gunfighter drama, Bonanza, The OK Corral, all of that sort of stuff bored the crap out of me when I was a child. So I'm not really the target audience for this. Having said that, there are some good things about it because the regulars put in a great performance. Peter Purvis is doing his comedy gold um playing every line for laughs dodo's kind of joining in with that and jackie lane's putting in a nice performance william hartnell is playing up everything that he can if you ignore the the gunfighter thing it's actually quite fun but it's all about gunfighters so there's only a certain amount of the the wild west thing that you can ignore We are going into episode four now, but there was a wonderful bit of infotext at the end of episode three where Innes Lloyd had written a memo regarding Martin Huntley, who plays Warren Earp in this, and he'd said that he has the most authentic accent from someone who's never actually been to America. Now, that, to me, sounded very much like a backhanded compliment, but there are some wildly varying American accents in this, and the only one who's coming anywhere near to a genuine one, Shane Rimmer, got shot several episodes ago. I was Mm. really, really wanting to like this one. You know, it exists in in its entirety. It's William Hartnell. I just think he's just great on screen. Peter Purvis I've always loved, and it's one of the rare stories with Dodo in it. So I was really wanting to look forward to it. It's fun, but it's not particularly brilliant. But anyway... And the thing that I've noticed is that Ike Clanton is played by William Herndl. Now, is that any relation? Was Richard Herndl not Herndall rather than Dell? Cue Wikipedia. Uh, I think you may be right. Yes, he was. So no relation. On that <laughs> minuscule bit of trivia, it's Run VT on part four of The Gunfighters. This is the OK Corral, and it's the very last episode that had an individual title until Rose in 2005. Run VT. <laughs> The Earps and the Clantons line up for the gunfight at the OK Corral. Now, as I understand it, this plot was mainly based on films and TV productions about the gunfight at the OK Corral, which didn't really have an awful lot to do with the genuine history of it. Oh, God, that song again. It's a really nice camera shot, though, on that crane. It is. The saloon set has been reduced in size for this final episode, and it shows. 
it's a real shame they didn't use the uh, uh, camera on a, a crane thing for some actual good episodes. Yeah. The story wasn't working as a classical historical adventure. Well, no, okay, it, it's it's played for laughs. Even Sidney Newman, he thought that it was well acted and recorded, but the whole Mickey-taking tone of the serial was misguided. Got to agree there, Sidders. He added that he disliked the way Linda Barron sung the ballad. <laughs> yeah, and all of these cowboys in silly hats, to me, seem fairly interchangeable. Oh, that's a bit three stooges. And I've not noticed... It's Milo Clancy! Yes. Isn't it? But also, you've got in the back, Dastari. Really? Yeah, is that not Warren's the pinky ring? Yep, Johnny Ringo, Lawrence Payne, who was... um, uh, What's his face in the Leisure Hive? Morix. Yep. Oh, he's in the Trollenberg Terror. It's one of those early ITV dramas that don't exist as the the original, but were remade as feature films. So Trollenberg Terror, Quatermass Experiment kind of fits into that, although it wasn't ITV. There's a few of them that were remade as films, and the films exist, but the originals don't. And the Trollenberg Terror was the first science fiction serial put out by ITV in the late 50s. Many of the original uh, cast were retained for the the film version a bit like the the creature abominable snowman um, yeah oh god that this fucking song, song. it seems to turn up about every 3 minutes yes now, Linda Barron is doing a nice job of it, and Kate already, already seems to have dressed herself in a shroud. You think she knows what's coming? I think she's supposed to be a madam. I think she knows exactly what's coming. It's a very nice set. BBC, you wouldn't expect and anything again, less. that high camera shot on a, on a crane. It's a real shame that they didn't do this on some actual good stories. Unless they did on good stories that we can't see, like The Savages. True. And this exists and The Savages doesn't, which is an awful shame. We're doing this in memoriam for Jackie Lane, and Dodo pretty much hasn't been in this episode yet. Mm. Well, has she been? I don't think we've seen her yet. Oh, God, we haven't picked an episode where where she's on holiday or something. (laughs) Mind you, I've said this before. If this one was missing... It, it would, would still be shit. No, but would it achieve that mythical status that missing stories do? No, because we'd still be able to hear how shit it is. I mean, okay, it would be a bit like the massacre in that you'd have the audio, but almost nothing in terms of visual representation. Now, in fairness, I would swap this for the massacre in a heartbeat. Yeah, uh, because the audio of the massacre is fantastic. Listen to the audio of this. It's still going to be as dull as crap. The problem with that is that you'd be imagining the sets 
And although the, the sets, sets are very good, the you'd sets be... look fantastic, but it doesn't save it because it's not not a very good story. No, but what I mean is, in your head, you'd be picturing movie quality Western sets on Doctor Who. And actually, you look at films of westerns at about the, at this sort of time or earlier. That's pretty much what you've got. They're, yeah. they're, it looks fantastic. Okay, I'm I'm not the target audience, so but people at the time didn't really appreciate it because it got a very low audience reaction index. Aha, Dodo returns. And there there looks to be genuine affection between. Uh, Hartnell and Jackie Lane on that. Mm. And as I understand it, they got on very well on set. This is kind of boring the crap out of me, to be perfectly honest. That's a fairly dumb thing to say. Was Hartnell really that short? I don't think he was a particularly tall man, no. Because he doesn't come across as... as as short as that in most of his other stories. Have they just got pissed off with him and decided to hire a load of taller actors? <laughs> oh, the American accents are dreadful. But how many people would have actually been to America or been particularly exposed to American accents? Glasses of milk, good grief. Yes, but I'm not just worrying about Stephen, my dear. The, I mean, the two of them are acting their little socks off in a, a, a fairly rubbish thing. And I know a lot of people absolutely love the gunfighters and think that it think that it's great and think that it's a real high point of the Hartnell era. And if that's you, good luck to you, but it's not for me. This episode has the dubious distinction of having the lowest ever rating on the Audience Appreciation Index, 30. I mean, there are an awful lot of people like me who just don't like cowboy stuff. Mind you, having said this, they've spent four episodes getting basically to a gunfight. I forget now, who wrote this? Oh, it's Dennis Spooner. No, Donald Cotton. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, because the, the book is very entertaining. And he'd done Mythmakers before this and The Romans. It's a real shame that The Mythmakers doesn't exist and this does, because everything I've seen about it and the audio, it looks fantastic. Johnny Ringo is going to be behind the One more yap and you regret your dead if you're alluding to the presence of Mr. Ringo... Oh, he really is brilliant, though, Hartnell, isn't he? And Purvis. Um, oh, yes. I mean, the two of them bounce off each other really, really well. This is why of the whole Hartnell era, Stephen Taylor is still my favourite companion. I just think him and uh, the first Doctor really work, particularly when it's just the two of them. I, I agree completely. Well, almost completely. I mean, if you're talking about individual characters, it's still Ben and Polly, and they, of course, yeah. transition to the Troughton era. But as a, an actual pairing with the Doctor, Stephen Taylor works best for me. Ian and Barbara. It doesn't matter which surrogate granddaughter character is there. Ian, Barbara and Hartnell worked brilliantly together. Agreed, yes, they did. I mean, just look at something like the Aztecs. Actually, the Aztecs is brilliant because it gives all four regulars something to do. One of the few times it does, yeah. I mean, for Susan, it's really either 
okay, there's the there's an unearthly child, there's Sensorites, which is where she's at about her most useful. After after both of those the Aztecs, even Dalek Invasion Earth, she's not given a huge amount to do until the very end where she decides that she's gonna stay with, with David. It does kind of demonstrate how uninterested we are in this episode by the fact that we're talking about Susan and Ben and Polly and an awful lot of characters that aren't in the, the series. And The filmed inserts, I mean, this is clearly done at a different set, and I'm sure it must have said it in the production subtitles, but I've missed it. Um, it's not bad, actually. I've seen better, but it's not bad as a street set. This set looks because no, there's space to it. I mean, this is the um, the Stormtrooper School of Marksmanship. See, I was expecting there to be some reveal that they've got iron plates in their uh, chests or something because there's so so many shots fired at them. They're just walking down the middle of the street and they're all missing. Jackie Lane's doing putting a fantastic performance into this scene. Oh, just look at look at her. She's by far the best thing in it. I'm sorry, Johnny. Oh, up until that, because that was that was marvellous. This bit's quite nice. I was going to say this is quite enjoyable. I think um, it's got a wider scope to it, and there's actually something going on. But the production yeah. subtitles have been telling us all the way through that. All the shops in the streets are accurate. They're just all in completely the wrong places. <laughs> Jackie Lane put in a marvellous little performance on that. I and mean, It was all face and eye acting, and she did a brilliant job. How much ammo is in those guns? There's a lot of shooting going on, but not much reloading. Or indeed any. Oh God, he was shot in the sand there. One of the worst places to get shot. The start of the final verse of the ballad was cut here. Oh well, small mercies. That must have hurt. That stuntman just landed on a pallet. Why on earth you want to leave Tombstone? I can't imagine. All the Clansons are dead. <sighs> yes, but surely Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp is no longer a lawman. Doc Holliday died of TB in 1887 Ain't at the age of 36. Well, he must have had one hell of a paper out. Always the same. It's a very good life. So fill up your glasses and join in the song. The law's right behind you and it won't... Oh, my dear Dodo. So my dear Dodo. You know, you're fast becoming a prey to every cliché-ridden convention in the American West. <laughs> it's high time we live. Oh, come along. Goodness come along, Oh, but doctor! I don't want to discuss it any further. Can you go? Come along. Yes, I So, now we're back in the TARDIS. Oh, this is their last time in the TARDIS set. Hmm. Next episode, Doctor Who and the Savages. And I would love that to exist, because it's a wonderful, wonderful story. See, I always forget the Savages as a six-parter. Well, it's a four-parter. So, 
why has it just said that they were both leaving six weeks' time? Because she leaves in episode two of the war, get, the war Machines. Of course, of course, yep. So inside six weeks, they will both have left. He leaves in four weeks' time, she leaves in six weeks' time. I'm not sure that was a great episode for an in memoriam. Although, to be fair, Jackie Lane acts her socks off in this, and it's her final full surviving story. I'm not really counting the War Machines because she she's there and instrumental in the first episode, and by episode two, she disappears halfway through and she's never seen again. So this is the last story where she really acting as a companion that survives. But it's not a great story, as far as I'm concerned. As I say, I'm not a huge fan of cowboy drama, but she does put in a great performance. Yeah, you've got to feel a bit sorry for Jackie Lane, really, because she wasn't best served by Doctor Who. It's well on record that William Hartnell hated the number and frequency of the cast changes. So by the end, the female companion was sort of being given a generic role, really. Ben and Polly, I do think, were given very definite identities. But by this point, Vicky was another one. Vicky, they never really knew what to do with. I'm not sure that's down to William Hartnell, to be perfectly honest. Because oh, no, no, no. What I mean is but, he, he didn't like the chopping and changing, but you can understand it if the characters that were coming in were basically interchangeable. Yeah, and he may not have liked the chopping and changing, but as I understand it, he got on very well with all of the actresses that were playing the companion role. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, I think there's only really Annika Wills who has said that he was a little bit spiky, but by then he was at the very, very end of his time. Yeah. And maybe wasn't overly happy about the fact that he was being pushed out. And possibly didn't have a great deal in common with her as a person because she was very 60s alternative, Mm. whereas he was very 50s establishment. Yep, that's not a bad appraisal. But as you said during the commentary, we've done pretty much everything except discuss the gunfighters, which sort of tells you how gripping this has been. I'm sure for people who enjoy westerns, there's a lot to get out of it that we probably haven't, but I've never been a great fan of westerns. You have said several times that you aren't. It's not a brilliant story. So really, you're only watching it for the performances the guest cast aren't amazing, so you've not really got a lot to hang on to here. I think Jackie Lane does the best that she can with the script that she's given, as does the actress who's playing Kate, but they're very much background characters. Agreed, yeah. But we have seen this before with several. Again, Maureen O'Brien's another one with Vicky. They're given nothing to do, and yet they do as much as they can with it. Yeah, and if you listen to the audios of the episodes because these characters aren't aren't given an awful lot of lines, then they don't really come across terribly well on the audios. But when you see them on the, the video, they're in the background acting their little socks off. And I think that that was true for Jackie Lane in this. Absolutely true, yes. When she's given something to do, and it's not often, but when she is, she does it well. But the character, it's not yeah. her fault that the character wasn't written brilliantly. And it never really was. From the minute she steps on board the TARDIS in the massacre to the minute, well, she doesn't really leave, does she, in the war machines. Yeah. She's not given an awful lot to do. And it's not even though that's consistent 
she's much more capable and competent in the gunfighters, even though she's not given a huge amount to do, than she is in the arc where she seemed to be very much a a kiddie character. And then you go to the, the War Machines and she's contemporary London girl, sort of on a par with Annika Wills. So she's never consistent. I remember reading a, uh, an article in some fanzine that was years and years and years ago saying that the most telling thing about the character of Dodo is her final line, which is, my name is Dorothea Chaplet. I resist all attempts to turn me into something else. Whereas <laughs> actually her entire time in the TARDIS over just a handful of stories is constantly trying to turn her into something else. And I think that rounds off a tribute to Jackie Lane. That's uh, fairly fitting end words, I think. It's not understating it that she didn't make the biggest impact in Doctor Who because, and it's no fault of hers, it's just the way the programme was running at that time. But beyond that, she had uh, a considerable impact being an agent to Tom Baker, Nicholas Courtney and Janet Fielding. And what she did in, Do- in Doctor Who she did very well. Gunfighters is a perfect case in point in that she's given almost nothing to do, but she really runs with it. The arc, she is great in, in so much as it's possible to say that anything is great in the single surviving episode of The Celestial Toymaker. Oh. Although I've <laughs> seen it recently in colour. Uh, there was a an algorithm-coloured version of Celestial Toymaker 4, and actually it's quite tolerable. Really? Whereas me and you, yes, whereas me and you have both up to this point found it interminably dull. Still not going to rescue it, but it's a lot more interesting in colour. Okay. For those interested, check out the Facebook page, Doctor Who Colorizations. There is some really, really good stuff on there, and I hope it's a hint of what to come. But yes, on the whole, um, she is, of course, missed. Uh, we didn't really get the big finish treatment out of her. And uh, she's somewhat, understandably, shied away from Doctor Who in the intervening years. I think she's only made oh, low-single-figure convention appearances. It's not unreasonable, but she, of all of the companions, she is the one that shied away from having anything to do with Doctor Who. It was just a job, and uh, I think she's carried that through up until, uh, you know, her last days. Yeah, and she was companion for, what, four stories? Is that all it was? She joined at the end of the massacre, which doesn't Doesn't really really count, count because she was there for one scene. Then you have the arc... Celestial Toymaker. Gunfighters, and then she leaves in the War Machine. So, sorry, Savages. So, yeah, four full stories. And that was her last acting job, so... (laughs) Doctor Who killed me. Or going out on a high, because four stories of Doctor Who is still a big deal even this many years later. Somebody who was in 12 or 15 episodes of something in the 60s I don't think would still be remembered today in the same way that somebody in Doctor Who was remembered. And we'd like to raise a glass to Jackie Lane. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com 
or find us on social media.